0: Father, as we look in John 7 this morning, I pray that we see Christ more clearly and ask that your Holy Spirit as our teacher would lead us and guide us into more of your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. We are in John 7 again. You guys remember when we started, John, we said that he paints these large canvases, these large murals, you know, that... In John, we take five chapters for the Upper Room Discourse, You know, no more than a part of a chapter in any of the other Gospels. And so we end up hanging out in the same conversation for a lengthy period of time because of that, because John gives us these discussions in full. And John 7 has been that way, and we've been with Jesus in Jerusalem at the Feast of Booths. And so his conversation with this crowd at the temple continues this morning. We're going to pick up at verse 25 and we'll go through verse 36. Therefore some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, Is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Look, he's speaking publicly and they're saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? However, we know where this man is from, but whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. Sorry, I'm going to interrupt here for a second. It'll be obvious in a minute if, if you haven't read this or don't remember this passage. There's a lot of opinions circulating in the crowd Jesus is speaking to. And so we see that right from the start. The crowd says, isn't this the guy some of those leaders want to get killed? They've heard it on one hand. On the other hand, they infer that some of the leaders may actually buy into a messianic claim here. They don't spell this out any more clearly, but it could be Nicodemus. You remember Nicodemus had met with him at night, and Joseph of Arimathea later will come into the story. So some of these folks may believe that some of the Pharisees, some of the Sanhedrin, had bought into Jesus being the Messiah. Also, in verse 27, though, for whatever reason, these folks are saying that when the Messiah comes, no one will know where he's from. It's not clear, frankly, why they say this or why they think this. I mean, we know when the wise men from the east come to Jerusalem seeking Jesus at his birth, Herod calls the Jewish leaders and say, where is he supposed to be born? Where is the Messiah born? And, of course, they know from Micah. So uh, there's just variations of opinion circulating in this crowd, one thing, and some different views about the Messiah that probably were not very well biblically informed. So we're hearing this is just some of the rumors or the murmurs that are circulating in the crowd Jesus is talking to. Jesus therefore cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. And Sorry for this again, but F.F. Bruce in his translation of this verse poses Jesus, the first part of his statement, as a question. That is, he would read it like this, You both know me and know where I am from, question, You don't know me and you don't know where I'm from. He could be inferring, we're not clear. He could be saying, remember they all think he's from Nazareth, but he wasn't born in Nazareth. He's born in Bethlehem, the place the Messiah had to come from. So he may be not making a statement but raising a question to tell them you really don't know me and you really don't know where I'm from. But he concludes saying he who sent me is true. The Father knows who he is and where he's from whom you do not know, verse 29, I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. They were seeking therefore to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. But many of the multitude believed in him, and they were saying, When the Christ shall come, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? The Pharisees heard the multitude muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Jesus therefore said, For a little while longer I am with you. Then I go to him who sent me. You shall seek me and shall not find me, and where I am you cannot come. The Jews therefore said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we shall not find him? He's not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What is this statement that he said, You will seek me and will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? Uh, The first point, we'll look at three three things that this passage raises. The first one is this. What a cacophony of sounds and opinions and takes on Jesus. And just listen to this. uh, This is like John's writing a play. You know, if you read a script, you know, it'll say the main character's name and then he reads. And and you know, if you've seen a stage production, they integrate these personalities in their speech. And this is a lot of what uh, this passage in John looks like. It's this articulation of all these various points of view and opinions about Jesus. The Jews, John mentions, he kind of divvies up this group and he identifies various viewpoints by various names. So the Jews, that's one term he uses. Normally in John's gospel, when, Jesus, or when John says the Jews, he's referring to Jewish leaders who are in opposition to Jesus. Here he just uses a way to identify one component of this large crowd, The Jews, verse 15, the Jews are the ones asking the questions here. They would represent those who want to know more and don't understand. They're confused. How has this man become learned? They asked in verse 15. In verse 35 they say, where does this man intend to go that we shall not find him? This part of the script, as it were, these guys are the ones asking the questions. We don't understand how did he learn these things, where is he going? There's also a group called the multitude. And you know, any one of these terms could apply, most of them, to anyone there. But he still uses these various terms to represent various points of view. The multitude in verse 20, you have a demon who seeks to kill you. They make this statement. And then in verse 31, many of the multitude believed in him. Back in verse 12, the multitude said, he's good. And then the multitude said, no, he leads people astray. Verse 25, the people... Another point of view, the people, uh, therefore some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man they're seeking to kill? Just pointing out a statement of fact. And then the last group, the Pharisees, the chief priests, and the officers in verse 32, the Pharisees heard the the multitude muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. They act collectively as a group, that is, the Jewish leaders. So, here is Jesus at the temple, for the feast and he's speaking to this crowd and every kind of reaction and response to a person imaginable is present in this group. Now Jesus is the same person all the time and he's taught consistently the same things and yet no matter the fact that he's been consistently the same person teaching the same things He gets this incredibly diverse response from the crowd he's addressing. Why is that? Same person saying the same things. Why is the response so varied and so different? And my answer to my own question here is, generally this becomes the issue. You know that all of us uh, look through life with a lens or a filter. That lens and that filter are the things we think are true, the things we like and don't like the things we want out of life or want to avoid during our life, so that when you and I hear things or we meet people when we're confronted with some kind of event or another, we filter it through our grid, through our medium, through the lenses that we've got in front of our eyes. So imagine the crowd here. The Pharisees and the leaders, they see Jesus as competition to their happy lifestyle. They're kind of on top of the heap in Jerusalem and in Israel, they're subject to the Roman leaders, but aside from that, they do as they please. And here's a guy who's drawing attention away from them. So their response to Jesus, who he claims to be in his teaching, is to say, we got to get rid of this guy. So they send people to arrest him. This would be the temple guard. And they, they were not, uh, the temple guard come in later in the story, of course, but... Remember, the Romans in general are the policemen throughout Israel, but at the temple, the Jews had their own temple guard, and so they had authority to act on behalf of the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, so they'll come into play again later. But the response of the people who heard Jesus varied in no small part because of their own preoccupation, predisposition, their own values, the things they wanted or didn't want out of life. Jesus is the same person to every one of them, saying the same things. And yet we've got this incredible variety of responses. The responses vary because the people hearing Jesus, seeing him, their priorities varied. And that determined, that, that made sure that their response was in accordance with their priorities. Jesus was the same person. Now, he has a lot of rejection. And, you know, there's not that many... Uh, at this point anyway, that are following him. In fact, if you remember the passage before in chapter 6, he says these crazy outlandish things about you got to eat my body and drink my blood, and all those people that were following him, they left, right? So he's kind of at a low water mark here. He doesn't have a lot of followers right now. In spite of the response that Jesus got, he continued, though, to be the same person saying the same things to please his father, This is is very, very important. You guys, uh, you've probably found this out, um, and if you haven't, you will, that you'll find in life some people will love you for the same reason that other people hate you, and that you can be the same person saying the same thing in your life, and you, like Christ, will have this variety of responses to who you are and what you stand up for, what you say, what you don't say. And it won't be because you're doing right or wrong even sometimes. It's just the fact that other people have priorities and what you say or do is filtered through their priorities or their lens. Christ's example here about continuing to do the things the Father wanted him to do, regardless of the response, that's a bottom line for us. People will hate you and people will love you for the very same reason. And so you and I can't try to determine our lifestyle, the direction, the course of our life, what we say or what we do, based on the approval or the acceptance of others, because guys, whichever group you're with, it's gonna be good or bad, you're gonna be rejected or accepted for exactly the same reasons. So you can't make the approval of people your guideline for what you say and what you do, because it's faulty, it's incredibly faulty. This is easier said than done when when we say we've got to make God's approval what we're aiming for. Because we innately have a desire to be known and accepted by the people we spend our life with. And you know that when you experience rejection, it's not a happy feeling. And typically, when I feel rejected, I think, you know... If I told that person the way I really am, they would see what a great guy I really am and it would all be cleared up. And you know what? It doesn't work that way. Sometimes if I seek to clarify their understanding, I just go a little deeper and a little deeper and a little deeper. This is going to be part of your life and mine. You will be accepted by some for the same reason you'll be rejected by others. And if that's the case, why? Why? Would we make the approval of fickle crowds around us like Jesus has here? Why would we make the approval of the crowd the criteria by which we determine what to do and what not to do? It makes no sense. We we would not only be schizophrenic, we'd be torn in every different direction because we can't please everyone. There's one person you can please. You and I can please one person every day, guaranteed. You can please Christ. You can please the Father every day. You and I can get up and we can do the things God's put on our plate for that day. We can say the things we believe God's giving us to say. And we can get up in the morning and go to bed at night at peace with God in our little sphere of the world because we've pleased Him. But if you make it your aim to please those around you, it's impossible. You've, you've set yourself up for failure because it cannot be done. What will please one person will not please another person. And it's because we have competing agendas We have competing things that we're all after or that we want to avoid. So here's Jesus. He's facing this incredibly diverse reaction. He keeps plowing straight ahead. The response of the group he's with at the time doesn't change who he is or what he's doing. His focus is still, in fact, he said earlier, I only do the things I see the Father doing. His goal is to please his dad. If you and I make our goal to please our Heavenly Father, we can get up and finish each day successfully no matter what kind of approval or rejection we've had from those around us. We need to labor for the applause of heaven and not for the applause of men. That's one thing. The second thing is this. The middle of this pericope, the middle of this subsection within John 7 is verse 31. Many of the multitude believed. That is, theologically, the center of this section that we're looking at is many of the multitude believed. Do you remember when we opened John, we said John 20, 31? John tells us, unlike others, John tells us bluntly, point blank, why he wrote this gospel. He said, these things I've written so that you may believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and believing you may have life in his name. And believe is the key term used throughout John's gospel. Well, he tells us in the middle of this mixed-up multitude, he tells us in verse 31, the middle of this section, it's like he underlined it or put it in red, many of the multitude believed. And what the take I want you to see on this this morning is this. This is a messy scene. It's chaotic and it's confused. And there's all these people with competing agendas, but... God the Father stuck Jesus right where he wants him and his purpose is being fulfilled because many of the multitude believed. That was God's agenda. Others didn't, but many did and that was the agenda. God's purpose in salvation was still being accomplished even in the midst of this chaotic, confused mass. Um you and I, the, the times we live in, and this would be true, I think, at any time, um, there are competing political factions. We've got a primary Tuesday because of competing, in some senses, political factions. Or in any time or any place that you or I might be born in all of Earth history, we've got various groups who want various things. And so there's always this uh, competition. There's uh, varying voices calling for your attention or for mine. There's a sense in which there's always this uh, chaotic confusion in the lives we live, and sometimes more than others. But in the midst of this chaos, God's will is being accomplished because John tells us many of the multitude believed in Jesus and were therefore, per John's definition, were saved. They'd come to Christ. They were saved. Many didn't, but many believed. I find this encouraging just related to continuing to share the gospel, you and I, today, where we live. There are many times in my life I look around and I feel like, Lord, there's not much going on spiritually. And there's certainly lots of competing voices in the culture in which we live, uh, competing voices that seem to be a winning out, you know, uh, uh, and all kinds of things. But just like in the midst of this chaos and confusion in John 7, many believe, the truth is God is still accomplishing his work, and he still uses you and I to do it. So even if you feel like the place you work, or the family you're a part of, or the place you go to school, or the people you hang out with, whatever, if you look around and it looks like a rabble around your life and that God's not doing much, you and I still need to be doing the same thing Jesus was which was standing up to proclaim the truth of the Father, and now in our case, the truth of Christ, the gospel, who he is, God the Son, and what he did. He died to save us from our sins. And even if, even if the fields, the soil that we're planting these seeds in, doesn't look promising, that's still what we're called to do. We're ambassadors for Christ. And even in a chaotic, confused mass, God is still going to accomplish his purpose, and some will believe. And you and I don't know who they are. God hasn't marked them out with a stripe or a star. We don't see that. We're still called. It doesn't matter if it looks messy. Most of the time it is. And you remember, that probably is the point anyway because God accomplishes his work through imperfect cracked clay vessels like you and I. It's not that we, through our superior wisdom or lifestyle or whatever, good looks or money, It's not that we accomplish spiritual work on earth. God, by the Holy Spirit, picks up cracked pots like you and I, and he accomplishes his purposes. So it doesn't matter if it looks messy around us. God's a specialist. He's still at work, even in the mess. So here's Jesus standing up, talking to this variety of people, each with competing visions, and right in the middle of this mess, John tells us, many of the multitude believed. Many did believe, and you and I need to remain faithful to continue to share the gospel. Even when we look around and say it's chaotic, it's messy, and no one's coming to Christ. We don't know. God's still accomplishing his purposes. So like Christ, we still need to say in the midst of the mess, Jesus is the one, and you need to focus on him. The third thing I want to look at is verse 30. It says they were seeking therefore to seize him and no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And Look at this closely and and just let this sink in. The reason no person laid his hand on Christ at this point is because the Father said it wasn't time. The Father didn't allow it, in other words. If you remember early in Jesus' ministry, he no sooner starts preaching up in Galilee and they lead him to the brow of a hill to throw him off. This is the very start of his ministry, and it says he passed through their midst. Why? Because it wasn't time, and it wasn't time here. And so no man laid his hand on him. In fact, later, at the end of this chapter, the officers that the Pharisees sent to arrest him, they come back empty-handed. The Pharisee, where is he? John tells us they couldn't arrest Him because the Father wouldn't allow it. Why? Because it wasn't time. John 8.20, further on in the next chapter, no one seized Him. Why? Because His hour had not yet come. John 10.39, they were seeking again to seize Him and He eluded their grasp. No one seized Him because they couldn't. They wanted to. They had a will to go in and seize Christ, and they couldn't do it. If you'd ask them, why can't you? They couldn't have articulated why. The guys come back, the officers, they're muddled. They say, we never heard anybody speak like this. If you remember the, the movie Star Wars, The Jedi Knight, he says things to these guys, and he controls their response through Obi-Wan. You know, he makes them let them through. or <clears throat> It's some, something like that. A little better, but something like that. It wasn't time, and so no one could seize him, and the people sent to do that, they just leave confused. They thought they knew where they were going and what they were doing, but they couldn't get it done, and they weren't quite sure why. Well, John tells us why it wasn't time. His hour to be arrested, his hour to suffer, his hour for crucifixion, and his resurrection, it wasn't yet time. This is an incredibly important point. You remember there's a phrase in scripture, in the fullness of time, God sent his son, sent his savior. In the fullness of time. You go back to Genesis. God says to Abraham that his, his descendants would be in Egypt because uh, the fullness of the sin of the Amorites hadn't yet been fulfilled. That, that the history of earth, even if it doesn't look like it to us, the history of earth always fulfills God's timing. In fact, you read in Acts Paul says God has arranged the territory and the time period in which nations rise and fall. Everything, in the end, is serving God's eternal purposes. And he's in eternity working in time to pull things off at just the right moment, no sooner and no later, not before and not after. Later on, when it is time, of course, Jesus is arrested and he goes through all this, the rejection, etc. If you look in Acts 2, 23, excuse me, in Acts 4, 27 and 28, I won't read those now, but when the apostles are looking back post-resurrection, they're talking to the Jewish leaders and they're reminding themselves that all these things happened to Jesus according to the predetermined plan of the Father. There were no accidents here. And Jesus, in this sense, was never a victim when he was arrested and when he was whipped and beaten, he always was submitted to the will of the Father. And of course, from eternity past, Jesus had known before he ever was born what he would eventually do and when he would do it and what that would look like. The people around him didn't know what God's timetable was. But John tells us they couldn't seize him, they couldn't act because his hour had not yet come. This uh This gave Jesus, as man on the earth, if you will, this gave a certain kind of security. He knew that not until the right time would would he be seized. That is, he knew his hour had not yet come, and so he was, in a sense, impervious to any of the threats of the Pharisees. If you remember a few weeks back, at least, we talked about the movie uh, Big Fish, and the guy is shown his death as a child. We talked about the effect of that. On one hand, you could live all your life in terror knowing the day of your death, but on the other hand you could say, I know that I die an old man when I'm 83 years old in this fashion, and so I know that between now and then nothing can happen to me. So, from that perspective I could say, well, since I know the time of my death, I can live every day of my life carefree knowing that I'm not going to die. That's kind of the perspective I think we need to get out of this passage Jesus knew it won't happen until the right time, and for you and I, God is in control of the details in your life and mine and the timing of things. You may find yourself in a job that you you want to get out of desperately, but there just isn't an opportunity. The door isn't open to take another job, and and you ask, Lord, how long? How long do I have to endure this? Well, Till God says the time is up. Or you may find yourself searching for work unemployed and wonder, how long, Lord, before I find that job? Or you may be single, hoping to be married, and you might say, Lord, you know, how long is this going on? You and I can look at elements in our life and, and bring in this time issue, and I would say if God was in control of the details of Jesus' life, I believe the same thing is true for you and I. He's in control of the details of our life and the timing of them. So that if you're not where you thought you'd be in life right now, or not where you wanted to be, you can still, reflecting on this passage, say, Lord, apparently it's not time that I was where I thought I'd be. Or apparently it's not time that I was married or in a different job or in a different place, whatever. It can apply to a million things. You can submit that to the Lord if you know he's good, and he is, and if you know he sent Christ to die for your sins because he loves you and has promised to not only redeem you but redeem your time on earth, then if we know, if we're convinced that all things serve his purpose and that the things in time serve his purpose as well, then we can find peace even in these times of our life that aren't what we wanted them to be or where we're not where we thought we would be or should be ultimately related to the day of your death uh, this gives consolation or comfort as well (coughs) excuse me we had an aunt who was killed a little over a week ago in an accident in dallas and uh, marcy ridgeway was uh, 66 she'd retired last year uh Her personality was like a cheerleader. She would take friends, and she would go to the Dallas airport to welcome returning soldiers home, to cheer soldiers to make sure there was someone at the airport to welcome them back to the States. She worked at a school in the last 10 years of her life or so, and she would be the sponsor at all these events because she just loved hanging out with the kids. Uh, Very, very vital gal. I can't remember how many kids I'm embarrassed to say. Cousins, nine children and involved in all of their lives, and one day, just out of the blue, her life is over. And there's a sense in which you say, I can't believe that she died now, or I can't believe she died so suddenly because her life appeared to be so vital and so full. But you know what? In the end, I say to myself, she died no sooner, and she died no later than God in heaven wanted, determined. And it's a shock, and it brings you up short. You know, the disciples didn't know what was coming with Jesus' suffering and rejection. They had no clue what was coming, even though he'd warned them. They knew, verbally, but they hadn't clued in. They didn't know what that meant or what it looked like. It shocked them. Sometimes things will, our apple cart gets turned over. God is still in control of the things that affect your life and mine, and when they happen, and when they don't. To God, there are no surprises. So, for me, this thought that Jesus' hour had not yet come, this comforts me because wherever I am in life and whatever's going on, I know that God is sovereignly, providentially arranging the aspects of my life so that his will for my life and through me towards others is accomplished. And I won't die any sooner or any later than the Lord has determined. In fact, there's a verse in Psalms that talks about all my days, that God has kept track of all my days. So whatever it is in life, if you feel like you're anxiously waiting for something to happen or you're hoping something will get over sooner than later, whatever it is, since God's sovereignly overseeing those things, you can entrust yourself to him. And then you can take more of a position of peace saying, Lord, I may not be very comfortable in this. I may be shocked temporarily at something that's invaded my life, whatever that might be. But I understand that all things serve your purposes. And therefore, I can be at peace and entrust the circumstances to you. So Jesus, in this passage, he gives us these great examples of one who's subject to the Father's will, doesn't matter what other people are doing as far as their response. Some believe, but many are rejecting various voices, confusion and chaos. Jesus still has it as his goal to please the Father, to carry out the will of the Father. And then in the midst of chaos and confusion, God's will was being accomplished because many believed. And then in the end, John tells us that The reason Jesus couldn't be seized earlier is because the hour, the time that God had already determined had not yet come. Jesus lived in light of that, and I think he calls us to as well. Make the applause of heaven your goal, not the acceptance of people around you. The fickle opinion of people who will love you or hate you for the same reason, accept you or reject you. And remember, in the midst of whatever chaos or confusion, we're still called on to represent Christ to the world around us. And it doesn't matter if the ground in your neck of the wood doesn't look very uh, fertile. You never know who's coming. And so we're called on to be faithful to share the gospel. Then we're called on to remember we serve at God's pleasure. Your time and mine on this earth, it's no longer and it's no shorter than God's already determined. And the events and the people and the circumstances of your life and the timing of all those things are all subject to his hand, to his purpose. He's not surprised by anything. He's not blowing it, even though at times we feel like he is. All things are serving his purpose, and he's using those elements in the timetable that suits his ends. Let me close with a short poem called He Cares for You. If I could only surely know that all these things that tire me so were noticed by my Lord, the pang that cuts me like a knife, the lesser pains of daily life, the noise, the weariness, the strife, what peace it would afford. I wonder if he really shares in all my little human cares this mighty King of Kings. If he who guides each blazing star through realms of boundless space afar without confusion, sound, or jar, stoops to these petty things. It seems to me, if sure of this, blent with each ill would come such bliss that I might covet pain and deem whatever brought to me the loving thought of deity and sense of Christ's sweet sympathy, no loss but richest gain. Dear Lord, my heart has not a doubt that thou dost compass me about with sympathy divine. The love for me once crucified is not a love to leave my side, but waiteth ever to divide each smallest care of mine. Let's pray. Lord, it's good to remember that the confusion and chaos we often experience in our own lives were not unique to us but are common in the world and are the same kind of circumstances that your son faced. Father, thanks for the example of the Lord Jesus in simply doing your will, regardless of the response of those around him. Loved or hated, honored or vilified, Lord, he made your applause, your approval, his goal. And Lord, thanks that in the midst of chaos and confusion, your will, your purpose was still being fulfilled as many In that group he spoke to that day, believed, and let that give us hope, Lord, to continue to share the hope we have in Christ in the chaotic and confused worlds we live in. And Father, in the end, thanks that all things serve your purposes and that, Lord, time and eternity serve your purpose. And help us to willingly, gladly submit to your will with what is going on or is not going on in our life, and the timetable, those things are occurring on. Lord, in in, uh, trusting ourselves entirely to You. Lord, You've proven Your love to us in giving us Your Son. We know that You won't withhold any good thing. In Jesus' name, Amen.